Welcome to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast with Steve Gordon. Welcome to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Gordon, and today I think uh, you're just going to get a ton out of this interview. I'm talking with Philip Morgan, and, and Philip helps small development shops make better positioning decisions. And he's also the author of the positioning manual for technical firms. Now, whether you're running a software development business or not, the things that we're gonna cover today on positioning are going to apply to you. And so um, I know we've got a diverse audience, but I know this is gonna be very, very important for you if you're running any kind of uh, of professional service business. And so, uh, Philip, welcome to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast. Great to have you on. Thanks so much, Steve. Really happy to be here. Yeah, so I, I guess maybe give everybody a little bit of context. How'd you get to this point in your career? What makes you an expert at positioning? I, I think the short answer is a lot of pain. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I got into self-employment accidentally. I think maybe I, I was recently looking at a Bureau of Labor Statistics graph about um, employment numbers and the self-employment landscape seemed to change dramatically right at the time that I got into self-employment. And if you, if I made you guess, you'd probably guess right. You'd say 2008, because that's when a lot of companies downsized and, you know, a lot of things went wrong <laughs> that were going well. And so I became unemployed in 2008, along with everybody else that I worked with at this particular company. And I, I said very arrogantly at the time, um, I was like, I could do better than that. You know, the the company I was working for had the classic whale client problem. And so their whale client stopped spending money in um, 2008. And, uh, you know, things just dried up very quickly for them. And I was like, oh, I'll never make that mistake again. You know, that's such an easy mistake to avoid. Classic, you know, beginner mistake. So I'm going to go out and work for myself and I'll get it right. And it's, you know, of course I made the exact same mistake a few years later myself because it's, you know, it's kind of intoxicating to have one client that seems like um, they can, you know, su- support your whole business and and you feel like, well, I don't need to, to do business development. I don't need to figure out how to get other clients. I've got this one great client and you can trick yourself into thinking it's going to last for forever. I did that. And then, you know, the pain came in when I said, well, that it, I didn't say it can't work. It just didn't work. And what happened next was a lot of on the job learning about how to do business development. And eventually I got the message that specializing, that narrowing down your focus in one of, you know, what turns out to be five different ways you can do it um, is really effective. It, it solves, it's sort of like you know, there's things you can do that have all these secondary um, side effects. And and this has a lot of positive secondary side effects. So marketing started to actually work for me for the first time in my life. Like, you know, before that I would write blog articles because I heard that's a great way to do marketing and nothing would happen. Or, you know, I would go to networking events and nothing would happen. And after that change of narrowing down my focus, specializing, otherwise known as positioning yourself. Uh, lots of things got better. And I don't want to portray this as a magic bullet because it requires other things. It requires work. It requires time. It requires courage. It requires discipline. But um, 
as in terms of a single decision you can make for your business that has all these cascading beneficial other effects, it was, it was a big one. So I did that and it was revolutionary for me. And so I wrote about it and it was a book that people responded to well, a self-published book called the positioning manual. And then it was uh, a really wonderful virus that took over my business because not a lot of other people, you know, there's, there's Al Reese, there's, uh, you know, others, David Baker, you interviewed not too long ago. Um, there are others at Blair ends. They've all talked about this subject. Yeah. But nobody had talked about it for self-employed software developers. And so uh, I said, well, I'll do that. And it's been, you know, it's, it's been a, the book is, I don't know, two, two and a half years old now. It's been selling steadily since then. And it's, it's become what I do is the main part of my business is I help self-employed software developers decide how to specialize, which sounds super simple, maybe, but it's, it's a decision that comes with a lot of uh, fear and emotional baggage. Yeah. And so hopefully the amount of fear. Um, yeah. I, I don't think it's a simple decision at all. Uh, we, you know, we go through the same thing with, with our clients who are maybe a little more uh, diverse in, in terms of their industries, but there's the, the, the look of panic in the eyes of business owners that I see when I say, look, you, you know, you're serving 15 people, you need to pick one. Right. Um, it, it's just incredible to watch. Um, and I know why it happens. I mean, you feel like you're giving up opportunity. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know what your experience is, but ours has been, that every time that a client makes the decision, all of a sudden the results immediately accelerate and it's really fun to watch. Yeah. There's a part of it that is like, it works like an investment. You don't, you don't get a return on investment right away. And then there's another part, which I think is the part you're, you're identifying. It's an immediate thing. It's, it's like when you quit a job that you hated <laughs> You know, some of the effects take a while to accumulate, but then there's this immediate relief of, in the case of quitting the job, I don't have to go back and keep doing that thing I hated. In the case of deciding how to specialize, the feeling is, oh my gosh, I finally am out of this realm of uncertainty and trying to, you know, understand 50 different dance moves and I can just do the one that I know is going to resonate with this client, this type of client that I've chosen to focus on. That's not the only way to decide to specialize, but you're right. There's an immediate, I I have seen it multiple times, this immediate sort of freeing up of like, Oh, things are simpler now. Things are easier. And the things that I'm talking about are, well, what do I say to my clients to get them interested in my services or not? my clients, but my prospective clients, what do I say to them? Yeah, I think um, it, I always equate it to the, you know, the, hey, I'm about to, you know, buy a brand new car. And, and once I sort of decide what that car is going to be, I see them everywhere, right? I never noticed them before. Um, the opportunities to go after any particular market are all around you all the time. But if you're not focused on any market, you're just kind of broadly going out looking for any client that you can find, they're, they're all invisible to you. But the minute that you make the decision and say, okay, I'm going after that type of client. Now you see those opportunities everywhere. And, um, and so I, it's a, I think it's the, the biggest, most important change you can make in a business. Now, before you got to this point where you, you got all this clarity in sort of this direction, I mean, we're in 2018 and, and it sounds like the, 
the watershed event was in, you know, 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. Um, over the course of the, the, the last 10 years, I'm sure it wasn't a straight line path or an easy path to, to get to the point where you're at now and to build the business. Sounds like you had to kind of discover this whole process of positioning for yourself. What, what was that like and how did you stay persistent through all of that? So I, you know, I think, I think it took me a while. I'm going to say something that maybe doesn't seem like the answer to your question. And, and what I'm going to say is, is uh, publishing uh, to an email list five days a week. So I'm going to say daily, but I really mean five days a week, not seven days a week. And I think people are going to say, well, <laughs> if you're publishing five days a week, I think you've earned the right to use the word daily there. Ultimately, but this is a little later. Ultimately, that was, I, I would credit that. Uh, now it's a habit. It, it didn't did not start out that way, but I would credit that activity with more of that, that's done more to make my business what it is today than almost anything else, other than specializing. So, um, you know, when do you want to talk about that a little bit? I am, yeah, not, no, I, I think that's great. And in, in fact, I, we maybe we can have a support group for daily emailers. I did it for four years. Um, and, and, and finally backed away a couple of years ago, but, um, and you can say daily when it's five days a week, that counts. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it's a big commitment. I, I know when I first started, I had all kinds of people telling me this was the stupidest idea I'd ever undertake, um, that I'd drive people away and and that Mm -hmm. that wouldn't want to hear from me. Mm -hmm. Um, I also know that, that building that habit and communicating like that, with your audience gives you the opportunity to discover much more quickly what really works and what doesn't and you know what causes your audience to to move closer towards doing business with you yeah yeah there's there's definitely a sort of trust building and marketing aspect to it and there's i i think one of the more profound things about it is so let's let's take a step back I am an unlicensed professional. Uh, you might be too. I don't know everything about your background, but you know, if you don't have the letters, you know, MD or CPA or what is it, JDA for uh, attorneys. You don't. If you don't have letters like that behind your name, you're an unlicensed professional, <laughs> and I don't mean that in a dismissive way. That's the if you think of it as a tribe or group. That's that's the group I'm a part of. And I'm specifically trying to help people who are also part of that group. And in that world, how expertise is developed is different than, you know, if you're an, a medical doctor or a CPA, there's no, there's usually not much in the way of formal training for us unlicensed professionals. And so what do you do to develop expertise? It, it, because this is so related to specialization. Like if you're going to specialize, I think what you're doing is saying, I'd like to be valued for my expertise ultimately, maybe not on day one. On day one, it's, I just want to know who I should be trying to connect and build trust with. Who am I marketing to? In other words, that's the day one benefit. And maybe, you know, the day 600 benefit or the day 900 benefit is I have expertise that can command a premium price because I've focused on this type of client or this type of problem or whatever it is. 
So that's where you want to get. And so I'm very interested in how you get there. How do you get to that point where you can credibly claim to have expertise that is super valuable? And you can do on-the-job learning, of course, and we all do that anyway. But I think if you commit to a daily publishing habit, I don't say a writing habit because you might not write. You might stick an iPhone in front of your face and record a short video. You might have a podcast that publishes at high frequency. Uh, so it could be any kind of media, but publishing daily to a an audience, email's wonderful because you, to an extent, know who your audience is. You've got a list of email addresses at least. And you know that at least some of them are uh, you know, opening and reading and paying attention to what you have to say. That's different than publishing on a blog where it's anonymous traffic, essentially. Doing that daily, I think, gets you quickly past what I think of as the superficial level of expertise, which is I know a little bit about a lot of things. And it quickly gets you to the point where, uh, and here's why I want to ask you a question, Steve. When you were uh, emailing daily, did you get to a point where you, you thought you'd said everything you had to say? I don't know if you were just, you know, like relentlessly selling something or teaching a little bit, or I'm not sure exactly how you did it, but I'm curious if you got to a point where it got real hard to come up with new ideas. Uh, I, I actually did. And, um, uh... I was about four years into it. And so, you know, in the neighborhood of a thousand emails yeah. um, and, uh, and we weren't selling something on, you know, on every one of those emails. Most of them were pretty short, um, 250, 300 words, just a thought an opinion an idea that hopefully would help the, the, the reader and also transmit a little bit or convey a little bit of my expertise. Right, um, but I, I will tell you that that the act of writing and the thinking that is required to write something with a reasonable amount of clarity does more to, and I think this is kind of the point you're trying to make is that it does more, at least it did for me, to hone and develop the you know my craft, for lack yeah. of a better way to say it, than, than just about anything else I've ever done. I have the same experience. If you're viewpoint, if your point of view on something and, um, you know, there are experts who don't have a point of view and there are experts who do. And the ones who do have an advantage in, in the kind of business that I think is some of your audience has. So if you don't, if you have a point of view, that's kind of flimsy and not well thought out, you will plumb the depths of it in, I don't know, 90, 120 days, very quickly you'll, you'll reach the limits. If you have a, um, you know, if, if you feel like you have something to teach, but you've never actually taught it before, you'll find out what you don't know very quickly. And that's when it gets hard. I, I said, for me, it was brutally hard for the first 90 days to publish at that frequency and then it became easier. But the other thing I like about it is it's a sort of accelerator for your own expertise. You'll find out where your limits are. And then if you commit to doing it, even though you feel like you're tapped out, you'll go beyond those limits. And that produces this growth of expertise or, you know, you talked about sort of insight into understanding an audience. It can do that too, because let me tell you, when you start publishing daily, even if you're uh, writing stuff that's not very good, you'll hear from people. Because you'll worm your way into their lives in a way that's different than 
uh, I call it high frequency publication and I set the bar at three times a week, mm-hmm. just different than anything that's not high frequency publication. Now you can do that also with really powerful, insightful stuff that's published less frequently, but I don't think, I, I think if there's one thing that's accessible to anybody, it's publishing daily. And so now I feel like I'm on a rant about this, but <laughs> your question was, you know, what's kept me going? That has, that's one thing that has for sure kept me going. Uh, there are other things, but I can point to that because it's so easy to understand. You just publish something five or seven days a week. So I, I will tell you it is, uh, it's so easy to understand. It's so easy to, at the outset, commit to. Um, I don't know how it is for you, but it was really hard sometimes to keep it going. Um, oh, for sure, yeah. You know, uh, a lot of other things want to get in the way. Um, you know, and I, I will tell you though, it, it, I've written two books. We've now committed to doing a book a quarter. And the skill that I developed in, in writing that frequently, which was getting ideas on paper quickly that, that were coherent enough for people to understand, right. is what now is allowed. I mean, I wrote the first book in two months. I wrote the last one in eight hours. Um, yeah, not a long, long book, but, but enough. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and so having that skill today, I think, is a huge competitive advantage. And that's one of the things that publishing frequently allows you to do. The other thing that you mentioned, which I think is really, really important, is, is this idea of your point of view, uh, or right. you know, your worldview. This is the way things should be done in my profession. And, and that's, the I think, the one really cool thing about being in the types of businesses that we're in, is that you get to have a worldview. If, you know, if you're in the product business, yeah, you can kind of have that, and that helps with the differentiation. And certainly, there are businesses that use it over there. But, uh, but it in my mind, it's the killer app for professionals. And I've been, as you described it, both I've been both a licensed and an unlicensed professional over the last 25 years, different industries. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one common denominator through all that that made both of those businesses successful is that we had really strong points of view and we shared them. Um, and that, you know, instead of the, here's, you know, the crowds all together huddled around, we were way outside the crowd. Yeah, I'm very interested in this question of, uh, like, some folks who are listening to this, I, I think I would bet money, say, that sounds great. In fact, I know what that looks like because I, you know, some of the people I look up to I, or admire or follow, they have that. Um, yeah, I'm not a big Gary Vaynerchuk fan, but dude has a point of view, <laughs> you know? Without a doubt. And so then if you don't have that, because you're, you're sort of have been operating more as a technician, let's say. Like, okay, my clients tell me what to do, I just do it for them. My clients tell me what to build, I build it for them. Or I, I feel like I am an expert at whatever, you know, software development, SEO, marketing. But I don't, you know, I just sort of do what other people say are the best practices. And so for, there's going to be a portion of listeners who lack a point of view. And... That's the first thing is to, to not be happy about that, to be dissatisfied with it. That's, you know, the first step is like awareness. And I'm not saying everybody has to have a point of view, but, you know, like you, Steve, I agree that it's this huge X factor. It's, it, it's a superpower. It's an accelerant. And so the question probably becomes, well, how do you develop a point of view? 
And I think one answer to that is you don't try. You do something that forces you to do it as a secondary uh, side effect. And I, I would contend that high frequency publication will force that to happen if you stick with it. There's lots of reasons people maybe started and stop. And I think one of them is they reach a limit and they're like, I don't have anything more to say. I'm embarrassed to admit that I don't really have much more to say about this. And you can either stop or you can keep going, be uncomfortable with that for a while. And, and you create the conditions under which you develop a point of view, I think. So maybe it seems crazy to folks, but um, again, that's all my long-winded answer to what's kept me going. <laughs> well, I think it's a great answer. And um, let, let's pause here. We're going to be back in just a second with more from Philip. And I, I want to dive in when we come back into the, the really nuts and bolts of, of positioning your business. So stick around. We're going to be back in just a few seconds. Hi, this is Steve. I hope you're enjoying this interview. We've got more to come in a minute, but what I'd love for you to do right now is rate this podcast. Leave us a review, rate us on iTunes. It'll really help others discover the podcast and help us help other CEOs, other business leaders become unstoppable. So if you go to unstoppableceo.net forward slash iTunes, you can find instructions there and links that will take you right to where you need to go to review the podcast. Thanks so much. Now back to the interview. Welcome back. This is Steve Gordon. I'm here talking with Philip Morgan. Uh, Philip, we, we uh, kind of got off talking about high frequency communication and, and, uh, and, and talking about developing your point of view, which I think is a really good lead in to the whole idea of positioning because I think it's essential position maybe not so much the high frequency communication i think that's the method that you that, that i think is most effective to get to the point where you've got that that really well defined point of view but right now if we kind of turn a little bit and start talking about how to kind of put in place this idea of positioning in in someone's business how do you approach that with your clients when you're working with them I was going to say the, the glib answer is, well, you, you know, you just decide to focus on a, a one type of client or one type of problem you solve and, and you're done. You're, you know, that's it. <clears throat> I think we can do a little better than that though. <laughs> there, there's this idea of positioning and I think of that as your reputation among a group of people. So, you know, I, I have a reputation as someone who helps people with this process of, and, and that's my market position. How you get there, I think, is you decide to specialize. And I'll, I'll give a little bit of a mini lecture on the options. I think that might be a good place to start out. Okay. And just as we do that, you have to keep in mind that I'm going to make this sound very clear and very simple, hopefully. And I, I recognize 100% that it is rarely that clear and simple in reality for most people. Although there's a segment of the population I've noticed that they can hear how to do it and they can just go do it. I don't know what to call them, you know, super achievers. I'm not quite sure. They're not, they're usually very risk tolerant and they, uh, they usually trust themselves a lot. So I, I wouldn't hazard a guess as to what percentage of the population fits that bucket, but there's a bucket who are like, yeah, why, why, 
don't make it so complicated. You just, you decide, you do it and you get the results. And I commend you if you're in that bucket. <laughs> so there's five ways you can specialize. Um, you know, I, I know that folks who've been listening to your show will have heard uh, David Baker at least talk about horizontal versus vertical specialization. And within each of those two, a lot of this is going to be a little more particular to people who work in technology. There's some sub options. So you can specialize uh, vertically in an industry. So you can say, I want to work with cosmetic dentists. I want to work with additive manufacturing companies. I want to work with management consultants. Those are all pretty specific verticals. And you have to do your due diligence on things like, first of all, do they need what you provide? <laughs> and, you know, is the market the right size? And some things have to check out. Something else that you might think about is what credibility do you have? And so that's the first way you can specialize. The second would be to specialize in an audience. Uh, a good example of an audience of companies would be uh, mission-driven organizations. You're going to have mission-driven organizations in, uh, scattered across different verticals, but that's a way to group together companies that share something in, in common and say, we're going to go after those kind of companies, or we, we think we create the most value for them, or we have the most in common with them. So that's, you know, we're going to pick that type of company. Horizontally, you can specialize in a, like a business problem. We help uh, companies for whom their lunch is being eaten by Amazon <laughs> fight back. That would be an example of a business problem that cuts across different verticals. Hmm. Um, and then the other option is, to, is what most software developers naturally are inclined to do that turns out to be the least effective option for building a business, and that is they specialize in a technology platform. So, it, you know, I'm going to get really good at developing software in Rails, for example. And that's picking a technology platform. And that's actually a very vulnerable market position because um, there's this real boom bust thing that happens with technology platforms. Um, you know, right now, you, you say, I want to help people implement and customize Salesforce. It's high cotton for you if that's what you're doing. Uh, five to seven years from now, you know, maybe Salesforce is not doing so well. Maybe the platform is not as healthy. Maybe they do like Twitter has done and made it really hard for third-party developers to integrate. Not saying they're likely to do that, but that something like that could happen. That makes your market position less valuable because of stuff that is completely outside of your control. So I tend to discourage that fourth option. The fifth option for specialization is to customize how you deliver your services. Sometimes this looks like productizing your services, or sometimes it looks like a really unique service delivery model. I think of Pia Silva, uh, who runs this company called Worst of All Design, and she does a branding and website package in two days. And it's repellent to people who want this high-touch, really, um, you know, in, I'm going to say inefficient, but I don't really mean that. I just mean this high-touch uh, kind of expensive process for branding, but it's absolute, um, you know, catnip <laughs> to people who are like, you know, I just need something simple and it needs to be done so I can move on and focus on something else. And so that's the fifth way you could specialize is, is customize how you deliver your services. You're less concerned about narrowing down your focus to a particular vertical or a particular horizontal. 
and you're more concerned about a service delivery model that you know is going to be like catnip to a certain type of client. So go ahead, Steve. I was just going to say, you said a a really important word there and and the word was repellent. Um, You know, I think we're all sometimes way too afraid to go out and do anything that we know is actively going to repel a certain type of client because they might show up. They might, there is the slimmest of chances that someone might show up with a bag of money and give it to us. <laughs> right. You know, I'm going to interrupt you and say real quick, I'm going to hasten to say, if, uh, sorry for the interruption, no, but we all want to repel clients that pay late, that are a pain to work with, that um, don't take our advice seriously, that hire us to build something and then never launch it or never, you know, take it to the next step. We all want to repel those kind of clients. So it's just, to me, it's, you're already used to thinking about doing that. Now you're just thinking, well, um, you're just extending that idea really to, I, I would like to repel clients and, and we focus on the loss without focusing on the corresponding gain. And, you know, you got, you touched on this earlier when you mentioned opportunity we're just sort of um, afraid that to miss out on any opportunity. And I think that attitude is forged in the fires, if you will, of scarcity. And a lot of us do start our businesses with a sort of scarcity, like we don't have enough clients to be busy. And we maintain that attitude of clients are scarce and hard to find way beyond its useful lifetime. And so that, that all relates to you know what you're talking about, which is that if you can embrace this idea of repelling clients in service of attracting the kind of clients you really want, then it's not about repelling clients. It's just about attracting clients and the repelling clients is just going to happen naturally. I'm not sure I'm being super clear about that, but uh, I, I agree. It's super, and it's a very important idea. No, I think, I think you're very clear. Um, and you know, I, I always tell our clients like you want to, you want to create this experience in, in the future client that you're communicating with that when they see anything that you send to them, they go, wow, he's talking about me or she's talking about me. And if you can give them, and I very literally mean that experience, like they look at it and they go, oh, wow, that is exactly me. Yeah, they're looking for the hidden camera in their office that you've placed there. <laughs> yes, and and that's easier said. It's, I, I, it's not the right way to say it. It's it's actually easy to do, assuming that you have made the decision to to specialize. And so, um, sorry if I took us down a little bit of a rabbit hole there, but I, I think I think it's a really critical topic. I agree. There's a perfect segue to the next big question. How do you make that decision? I have just described the five decisions you could make in general terms, but how do you actually decide? And that's where a lot of my work over the last year or two has been. It's the mistake I made years ago was to treat everybody the same and to say anybody that's considering making this decision, they just need to they just need to pick something and go with it, or they need to go after the biggest opportunity, or <clears throat> they need to look at their, um, their sort of roster of previous client experience, 
their previous life experience, perhaps, and find a head start and then build on that head start. And I've just described uh, three ways you can go about making that decision. One is find a head start. One is delegate it to chance. Uh, like I have jokingly suggested that if you're having trouble deciding, go to the naics.com website, print out a list of <laughs> throw a dart. You'll, you know, it'll land on something like finance or manufacturing. Go back to the website, drill into that vertical and find a sub vertical and print that out, throw a dart at that. And now you've made your decision. And of course I'm joking. No, I don't, most people would not take me seriously for good reason. But yet, if you refuse to make the decision, I think things are going to go worse for you than if you delegated it to chance. So in a way, I'm not joking. But that would be the second way is delegate it to chance. And then the third way would be to look for an entrepreneurial opportunity and say something like, uh, you know, I really see a lot of life coaches and these other sort of independent small businesses wanting to put up. Uh, wanting to create online courses because that's currently a hot topic and I'm going to help them do that. And uh, by the way, I don't really have any experience doing that, but I'll just learn how to do it on the job because surely I can do a better job than they can. If I'm focused on it full-time and they're focused on it part-time, by definition, I should have more resources to figure it out. And that would be going after an entrepreneurial opportunity, which is very risky and beyond the risk uh, tolerance of most of the people I work with. So most of the people I work with are going to look for a head start and that's going to be the appropriate way that they decide. So, you know, that's to me another very interesting aspect of this is there's a sort of, sort of know thyself component of understanding how you uh, manage risk in your, in your business and your life. And then there's another aspect of, okay, based on that, which opportunities should you, exclude from consideration because they're too risky. Yeah. And I think um, for most people, there's something that within, you know, an hour at the bar or an hour at Starbucks having coffee or something stronger, they can draw on in their past that, um, and, and whether it's an affinity or a particular skill, um, I think in in either of those places, there there's something there that you can take and you can move forward with. Um, and I, you know, I know that that you feel that the entrepreneurial opportunity approach is is maybe a little more risky, or most people perceive it as being more risky. Um, and and the reason that I think that is is that they think, well, my goodness, you know, I'm I'm supposed to be a professional. I'm supposed to have practiced my profession and honed it and developed expertise. And while all of that is true, I'm certainly not suggesting you go out and do something you're wholly unqualified for. Um, you know, if you're someone who is in the technology world, taking your example of, you know, setting up online courses, mm -hmm. by the time you get to doing that the second round for someone, you've now done it 100% more than every client you're ever going to get from here on out. In other words, you're twice the expert they are. Yeah. Um, and, and so getting to that point of, of having enough expertise to deliver a competent service and provide at the end of the day, provide value for that client, which for most of us in, in any kind of service business, there's two, two levels of value. There's the, the value they get from the result 
But there's also tremendous value that they get in the time that they have now not had to invest to go create that result on their own. Even if you maybe deliver them a result that isn't the absolute you know, most optimized thing in the world, if it's good enough and still gets them a result, it's it tends to be a really good value for them because they haven't had to invest any time. Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple interesting things there. You described a process and, you know, there's like making the decision. Let's say you get to that point. You've decided, okay, I think I have a head start here or, you know, I've always been pretty risk tolerant in terms of spending money and uh, speculatively spending time and energy. So maybe that means I'm a, a pretty risk tolerant person. So I'm going to go after some entrepreneurial opportunity. What almost immediately happens is a sort of buyer's regret about the decision. And I, I want to spend a minute talking about that because that, because you haven't had a chance to implement, you've not had a chance to start you know, you're not changing a website, you're not changing your approach to business development, you've not got that to, to that implementation stage. And so the decision is not real yet. And you can easily start doing what I've seen a lot of people do, which is entering this sort of uh, recursive loop of self-doubt and questioning the decision, because you're lacking any kind of feedback from the marketplace about the decision. All you're, you're stuck in your head and you're, and you know, imposter syndrome maybe is a problem for a lot of us, but, you know, and, and that comes out of nowhere and you have a bout of imposter syndrome and you say, well, gosh, who am I to do this? Or who am I to claim to be a specialist, not even an expert, just a specialist in some area. That's a common one. Or you start to question the kind of basis upon which you've made the decision. You're like, well, I don't have any real evidence here. Maybe I just got lucky. Yeah. I've had 10 clients in finance and they were all great but maybe those are the only 10 good clients out there and I just happen to get them. You start having this almost magical thinking that you, you're, um, you know, uh, your decision is somehow flawed or based on bad evidence. So that's, um, that's something people should be aware of. And the best remedy I have for that is to have an intermediate stage before you implement the decision for real and you know, maybe you just reach out to some companies that are in this space and you have conversations and you see what it feels like. It depends on the person. I can't really give a universal uh, kind of prescription here for what to do about this illness <laughs> that flares <laughs> up, uh, except that if you're pretty detail oriented and you're not a big risk taker, the main thing that will help at that point is some evidence to get you out of your head and get you in conversation with people in this area that you've decided to focus on. And then you can move more, I think, um, boldly and with less reservations into implementing it, which is, you know, making it real in, in the world. And that takes time. It's not an overnight thing. You know, we talked about some of the things that happen very quickly, this clarity about who you're focusing on and so forth. But, it takes, like you said, Steve, it takes time to build up the confidence in your own expertise, unless you're just one of those rare people who are just, you know, they just seem to not question themselves that way. It's so funny you mentioned that, and I'm, I'm listening to you sitting here thinking, yeah, okay, I, I remember about, so I'm eight years into building this business, and, and I remember about six years ago thinking, boy, did I pick the wrong direction. 
<laughs> and you know, so it, 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 I was kind of almost drawn back to that time when I, I felt really unsure of things. Um, I think it's a natural part of the process. And um, yeah, if I can jump in, it's a mark of intelligence. You know that whole Dunning Kruger study. It's a mark of intelligence if you question your own uh, capability, your own like that's it's usually a good thing, but it can also be a self defeating thing if you give it too much airtime in your own thinking. Yeah. And, and I think for most people, and, and, and you you mentioned it a moment ago, the, the idea of getting caught in your own head. For most of us, we get caught in our own head, get in this sort of echo chamber going around in our brain. And um, there are very few markets that are truly limited. So I have a good friend who sells uh, training software to uh all of the states uh, in the United States. So he's only really got about 50 potential clients. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, probably not that many. I think there are a couple of states that actually don't use this, this type of training. Um, so he's, he's got fewer than that. That's a, that's a tight, scarce market. Um, yeah. you know, for most of us, though, we're dealing in markets where there are so many clients that even as we specialize, there are more than we could ever serve in not just one lifetime, but in 10 lifetimes. Yeah. And I think it's useful to remind yourself that. And, and the way that I went about that, because I, I got to tell you, I, it really hit me hard about two years into the business thinking, man, I've, I've over-specialized. And, and I was having a conversation with friends and people worried about it. there's seven and a half billion people on the planet. You know, there's plenty of people out there and enough of them do what you need to do uh, that, that you probably wouldn't have to leave our little town. I live in a pretty small town in Florida, mm -hmm. um, you know, and you'd be just fine. And I started thinking about that. And so I put a little thing up on the wall behind my computer monitor that I could see. And I left it up there for about six months that said, remember, there's seven and a half billion people here. Yep. You're going to be okay. You know, and, and, uh, just having that little reminder to get yourself out of, out of your head will help you get through that. I think, and, and keep going. Cause that's the trick is you've got to figure out, how to get out of it and keep moving forward because it, it can become paralyzing. Yeah. And there's, there's plenty of evidence. It's not always easy to interpret, but it's not that hard to find, you know, uh, at least here in the United States, U S government has lots of data on, well, how many businesses are there in manufacturing that have between this number of employees and this number of employees that's in what's called the American fact finder. Again, it's not a, that navigating their interface is not a joy, quite the opposite, but it's there. It's there if you look for it. But, you know, we have all these cognitive biases that cause us to uh, underappreciate the amount of data that's out there that can help us make these decisions. And we do that because, you know, we can't spend an unlimited time thinking about every little aspect of the world. The world's a very big, complicated place. But that, that general idea that it's probably an iceberg, you're probably seeing the tip of it, and there's much more of it underneath the surface tends to hold true. And I've only seen a few people who can just trust that idea to be true. Uh, I know a guy in Turkey who, here's what he does. He helps um, executives at a certain type of investment company give better presentations. That's, so that's very specific in terms of what he does. And he decided he was just going to focus on the market in Istanbul. I, this is a person I've interviewed, so you can hear more about this in the interview I did on my podcast. But 
that, that uh, was a market of six clients for him. That takes real courage and real trust in this idea that the market's actually bigger. But that's inevitably what happens is you, you get into it and you say, oh, wow, uh, I didn't realize. Uh, I mean, there's a number of ways it can go from that point. I didn't realize what I do is equally valuable for not just this type of investment company, but this other type of bank. <clears throat> Sorry, I meant to say bank there and then my voice cracked. Um, or, you know, what I do, there's actually uh, 500 of these companies worldwide. I just, and, and I'm happy to get on a plane if they'll pay my rate, but there were only six in Istanbul. Or I thought there were six, but there's actually uh, a few that don't really advertise and so I didn't know about them. Anyway, I, I'm not trying to bore folks. I'm just saying there is almost always a bigger part of that iceberg if you know where to look for it and if you are terrified of this decision then i recommend that you get on a diving suit and see what the underneath of the iceberg looks like before you decide mm. or if you can just kind of trust yourself and your instincts then the chances that you will choose wrongly are vanishingly low and just make the choice and go for it, it sounds like sounds like that maybe is what you did steve <laughs> yeah something like that yeah. Well, Phil, we could probably go on and on for hours, and I know we're about at the end of our scheduled time, and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, and for folks listening, um, whether you recognize it or not at this stage, there is some some real gold in what we've just talked about. And so I encourage you to go back and listen to it multiple times. And I also encourage you to go and uh, connect with Philip, uh, particularly if uh, you're you're in any kind of technical business. Um, and so Phil, what's the best place for people to go and, and find you? I like folks to dip a toe into this idea at positioningcrashcourse.com. There's a free email course they can sign up for. I feel like that's a good starting point. It's not so much about me as it is about this idea and whether now is a good time for you to make these kind of changes to your business. If you've been in business for more than a year or two, it probably is. Uh, but you know, the best way is to learn more about it at positioningcrashcourse.com. Perfect. We will link that in the show notes. So uh, if, if you're listening to this and, and uh, didn't catch that, just, just go to unstoppableceo.net. You'll find uh, all of that in the show notes and, and it'll be linked there so you can find it easily. Philip, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, like I said, I could, I could go on and on on this topic for, for hours with you and, and have a great time doing it. Thank you so much for investing some time with me today. And, and uh, I know that for everybody listening, I know they got a ton of value out of it. So thanks again. My pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating on iTunes at unstoppableceo.net forward slash iTunes. 